This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Does the Home Office work? It's been a tricky week of headlines for the department. The week opened with a Home Office under attack from David Neal, a former independent inspector who had been abruptly fired recently. And then the long-awaited inquiry into Wayne Cousins, the Met police officer who killed Sarah Everard, was released, revealing institutional failings. And finally, at the end of the week, it was revealed that the Rwanda flight scheme will cost over half a billion pounds for the first 300 migrants who arrive. I'm Cindy Yu, and on this special Saturday Shots, I'm joined by James Hill and Salma Shah, Director of Kraken Strategy Limited, who was previously a special advisor at the Home Office under Sajid Javid. James, is a part of the problem just that the Home Office has too many briefs? You know, in just that he- introduction alone, in this week's headlines, we've had immigration, crime, national security. It's just trying to do too much, isn't it? Well, that certainly seems to be the way. And it's always been in charge with the kind of really difficult issues with the state law and order ever since its creation in the 1780s onwards. Uh, And of course, it used to be much bigger. You know, the words not fit for purpose could be hung like an albatross around the neck of the department. And those are the words used by John Reid in 2006 when he split up the Home Office from the Ministry of Justice. But really, it's some of the most difficult issues the government has to get to grips with. Uh, Some of the responsibilities it's had historically, such as the traditional rule that the Home Secretary had to witness the birth of a future monarch, that's now mercifully been scrapped, but other things have been added. And what's remarkable since the 1990s is how really immigration has become the big issue facing the Home Secretary of the day. Hence why a lot of these issues do with asylum, borders, all those different things. And of course, I think it's particularly a vexing subject for Conservative Home Secretaries, given how I think migration is such a key fault line on the right currently in British politics. So it was ever thus to an extent with the Home Office. I mean, Herbert Morrison warned that the department in the 1940s, the, the, the corridors were paved with dynamite. Um, I think it was a great occasion when Jack Straw was told by um, Kenneth Baker that uh, there, you know, there were 50 officials working in your department at any one time on problems that could bring down your political career. And not only will you not know who they are, they don't know who they are. So, you know, histor- <laughs> there's a long history here of the Home Office being a sort of graveyard for departments. Ken Clark said it was the most dangerous department he worked in in the 1990s, and he worked in most of them. But really, I think it's been more recent the pressure, and obviously you have a European-wide migration crisis right now, and that's an issue for successive Home Secretaries, as we've seen under Priti Patel, Suella Bravman, and now for James Cleverly too. Now, Summer, by the time that you were going to the Home Office, you'd been at a few different government departments. You'd been at culture and sport, business and housing as well. So did you feel when you were going into the Home Office that uh, corridor of dynamite, as James put it? I don't know if it's appropriate to say this, but I had um, given up smoking successfully after having a child. And when I went to the Home Office, I started smoking again, (laughs) uh, if that's any kind of indication. So yes, that was there. But I have to say, of all four departments that I worked in, the Home Office was my favourite because... You know, as you quite rightly say, James, you know, there are huge issues at stake there. However hard it is, it's very rewarding work because you know that you are actually making a difference. It's not setting an economic policy that you don't know whether you're going to get to see through in three or four years time. It, there's an immediacy to it. There's a requirement to it. And you're, you actually are making a difference, you know, on the front line in terms of your policy. Now, having said that, what is the problem with the Home Office? You'll start off with this question. Is it too big? 
It is a big department, undoubtedly, but nobody would say that about the Treasury because everything has a touch point and synergistically it works together, as does the brief in the Home Office. If you were to separate it out, then actually you would make it much more inefficient in being able to set the policy and you'd end up with those usual rivalries that you get in Whitehall and that inability to be able to talk across departments and people sort of living in their silos. So I think there's a real administrative downside to splitting the Home Office. I also think... The Home Office, in all interior ministries around the world, essentially are faced with this enormous challenge in that they can no longer continually look inwards as to the issues that are taking place, as well as, you know, globally things becoming more open or, you know, as the trend was until recent times with trade and economy, migration, threats and security issues are also cross-border, as are alliances. So... Weirdly, the Interior Minister Ministry in all nations, especially, um, you know, Five Eyes, I'll take that as an example, because that's who you deal with a lot in, at the Home Office. It's becoming more international. It's got much more international dimension. And for all the difficulties that come with the Home Office, yes, there are 50 things that could end your career at any moment. The things that we see are the things that drop. But for a lot of the time, things work quite effectively. And I think that nobody thanks the Home Office enough and the officials at the Home Office enough. Most officials at the Home Office, they don't do what the rest of Whitehall do. They don't move around every two years. When they go there, they care about the work and they really wear their heart on their sleeves. And that's one thing that I will say about Home Office officials that are very different to all others that I've ever come across. Mm. Well, I wonder if we can talk about the more specific complaints then, because James, you've been following this David Neal story quite closely. And earlier this week, the Home Office did publish some of his reports that had been taken so long to publish. What do those reports say about the failings that are within the Home Office? Yeah, so there was a big route last week going on because uh, David Neal was complaining that these reports were not being published. And the concern obviously is that we've got an election coming up later this year. Uh, he therefore spoke out about it and therefore his, um, his term ended prematurely. It wasn't going to be renewed because according to him, he's been blocked by number 10 from uh, having his term re-extended once more. So these reports today deal with a whole litany of failures in terms of different borders being unable to be manned properly, uh, the way in which asylum seekers are being treated in different parts of the country, and also just looking at really, I suppose, the system coming under pressure from increased demand and sort of limited supply in terms of resources being able to tackle these different issues. I do agree just on the Salman's point previously, which is about, you know, breaking up the Home Office, which is going to be something you see here renewed calls from, from both the left and the right for different motives, perhaps. You know, the Home Office has enormous delivery operational responsibilities in terms of, you know, its operational department, but it doesn't actually have a huge budget, say, compared to the Department for Health, which obviously gobbles up about sort of 20% of state spending, whereas the Home Office is much smaller. So it's about, I think, the, the key thing with the Home Office is that often it's, you know, as Spad will know, you know, sort of you have to go in with sort of political eyes and ears. But often you, Fiona Hill said this, I think, at three, four years ago at Home Affairs Select Committee, which is that she had to become very much more aware of operationally on the ground. And actually, she, she, she felt that actually the longer she spent in the Home Office, that there was sort of less kind of political awareness because she was so focused, not so much on sort of how a policy will land in the media, but rather how it will play out on the ground. And something that might seem great in theory actually is very difficult uh, when it's actually going to be implemented. And I think that's one of the challenges right now is that Rishi Sunak has made it a key thing about tackling migration and dealing with some of these issues that David Neal was complaining about and you know the asylum backlog, etc. The problem is, is that when you then get to policies, often those are very different playing out on the ground. They may take years to be actually see any results. It may be about international conjunction as well. And so 
I think that's the real challenge is how do you kind of keep your political savvy in the Home Office while also being aware and not proposing policies that simply won't fly. And I think you talk to some people in the Home Office or around this, their their sort of concern is, well, Rishi Sunak shouldn't have made unrealistic pledges about getting the asylum backlog. Can I I just come back to this, though? Because you make a very interesting point. I just want to build on something. So it's never the job of the the political people in, in the department to sort of think about the implementation. But it is very hard to have accountability or to account for the things that are happening. So that certainly needs to improve in terms of how structures and work plans are put in place. And it's that very sort of boring corporate part of, you know, what happens in Whitehall. And even Whitehall itself is not great at that always. And so that needs improvement. What I think is really fascinating about the Home Office is that even though it's like this little island in the rest of Whitehall, actually there's lots of policies that touch it that can fundamentally change what happens to it. So migration numbers, for example, if you took students out of the migration numbers, then it wouldn't look as difficult for, uh, you know, what was happening in terms of people feeling like there, there are lots of people coming in and it's out of control. There's also the issue around what does one do with asylum seekers in terms of allowing work, for example, to prevent it creating such a huge burden on the Home Office. And so there are sort of economic factors as well, where you think you've got a skill shortage and you've got all these vacancies and and yet you're paying for all these asylum seekers to be in hotels and, um, you know, accommodation. And whether whether there is any way that you can actually read across other policy areas into the Home Office, which I don't think has ever really been done successfully because the Home Office does sometimes, to its own detriment, siphon itself off. And the other thing about the Home Office, yeah, they run such a tight budget and most of it is self-funding. The border is self-funding, which is why you will see expensive visas, expensive passports, renewals um, and all those fees because it has to pay for itself in, in a lot of ways. And even though people want security, you know, if there's, there's, if there's a line in the budget that's attached to it, there's all manner of controversy that comes around it. And if there's any kind of efficiencies that are made, whether it be around data or computer systems or anything like that, then rightly you will get a lot of challenge from civil liberties groups because it is effectively, you know, the security department who then has access to all this information. So there are questions around that. So I want to ask, I mean... You talk to some people who've been in the Home Office a long time, special advisors, ministers. You think, for instance, about Robert Jenrick's resignation at the end of last year, where it seemed that sort of the longer they time spent in the department, they became more and more convinced that you had to go down a quite sort of hard line route. Do you think there's a danger, perhaps, the Home Office does encourage that kind of bunker mentality in, in staff and that people end up embracing measures that they hadn't previously thought and getting on quite sort of hard line path? Or is it just about, I don't know, about trying to ward against that? What do you think in that kind of sense of becoming increasingly hard line in terms of the measures you're proposing? No, I think this is all about political context. All about political context. Yeah. Okay. So, so the one thing that I will say about the Home Office is that the majority of the time, <laughs> I'm very careful about what I say. They absolutely follow to the letter what the Home Secretary is asking. Um, but I think uh, the officials in the Home Office have to have a lot of faith in the Home Secretary that they're serving because you can't mess around in that department. There, there's like s- such seriousness that, that happens there. There are such consequences if you get it wrong. So I think it is very important that they they do respond to that hierarchy and they do want to follow the Home Secretary's uh, instructions. But I think you have to have quality in your Home Secretary, which I'm not afraid to say sometimes hasn't always been there. Political context is so important because you're talking about, and you mentioned previously, the 90s, sort of making migration, since the 90s, migration being a big issue. That's a global issue. We are in 
much more uncertain times where migration is flowing as a consequence of economic drivers, yes, but of conflict, of issues around climate change. And we are also going to bear the brunt of that. Europe is bearing the brunt of that. So there's this other aspect of the Home Office that means that it is quite responsive and quite dynamic to what is happening around it. And I think ministers sometimes maybe don't see that actually they're impacting on the way that the structure is changing. So it's not always just that being a sort of firm, rigid place. Is there also a feeling, and both of you have kind of touched on this, that there are decisions being made outside of the Home Office or there are things that the Home Office can't control but that it's carrying the can for? Things like, I don't know, you know, Salma, you mentioned students in the immigration numbers. Uh, we've been talking about, for example, this Rwanda scheme, you know, number 10 backs it, but it's the Home Office that's being asked to deliver what is a pretty tricky policy. So is there a feeling that in that sense that it's remit? It's a bit of a hospital pass. Well, it can be, but also ministers think con- what someone says is context is so key here. And it all depends sometimes on the relative strength of the minister via V number 10 or the treasury, what kind of pressure they're getting on it. So when I wrote about this trust, the reason why Suella Braverman quit, resigned, whatever you want to call it, partly was because uh, number 10 was encouraging her to sort of change the figures around migration to kind of meet the OBR school guard on that. So that was an issue where it wasn't just confined to just purely home office issues. It all depends also on what the minister's like, what the minister comes in. So a great example, historically, Roy Jenkins got rid of the long-serving permanent secretary of his department, who he felt was blocking a lot of those reforms. So it all depends on really what the minister also chooses to do with it. And a good creative minister, I think you probably agree, can get results from a department in, in a, if they're clever about how they choose to do about it. But I do thing what was kind of striking was sort of James Cleverly came in and his first thing was to say you know I really appreciate the work you're doing and that was a very different approach perhaps to some yes. of his predecessors. Well I think you've got to remember when you go into the Home Office you say I'd like my numbers are probably going to be wrong here but roughly you know you've got a core team of 8,000 and a sort of wider team of 300,000 and four spads aren't going to fight them all you know <laughs> <laughs> and so somebody asked me well it's like what's the advice you would give to Suella Braverman yeah, going into the Home Office and I said it's very easy to make enemies in the Home Office so try and make friends. But just, just if only she'd listen. <laughs> just to take that that thought about the Home Office carrying the can for stuff. You know, there's there's something else in the news this week that actually is really pertinent to that, in my view, which is this report on Wayne Cousins. And you know, a lot of people are sort of applying this pressure on the Home Office about you know national vetting standards, which in and of itself is is perfectly reasonable and legitimate. I'm sure the Home Secretary is you know going to have a fulsome response about the way this is going to work but the home office has no operational responsibility for police forces in england and wales and nor should it because ostensibly the police is a public service it is there for the for the needs of the wider public it is not supposed to just be an arm of the state to carry out enforcement it's you know it's enforcement of law not enforcement of the home office at home offices and instructions and yet Everybody, whenever something like this happens, turns to the Home Office. But fundamentally, the issue doesn't sit within that building. It is about actually how police chief constables are running their forces. And I'm not denying that there is complexity, there are challenges and that there are pressures. But we need to hold the right people to account for the right things. And you can't just say, here's this big monolithic entity. What we're going to do is throw stones at you because it's easier than asking the more difficult, detailed questions that are further downstream, which are actually the places that these things are going to change. And I would just simply add that I think ministers ought to stand up and sometimes when they're getting pressure from the media, what are you doing about it, etc. They ought to say, look, there's a clear demarcation of responsibility here and I'm not going to interfere in police operational independence. I would simply reflect on the comments of 
Lord Mervyn Rees, who was Home Secretary in the 70s, who just said, you know, you can't you think about your next job. You can't be talking about if you want to be number 10, etc. You've got to focus on the job in hand because otherwise you'll go mad because... It's very difficult to see everything as we turn to this issue of politics versus operationality, you know, being able to deliver. And I think a lot of people sometimes have their eye on the, the main chance and are willing to wade into situations perhaps rather than, as, as someone says, you know, trying to ensure that they take responsibility for what is in their departmental brief and not things like independence of police operations. But also, if something is referred to you, learn how to ask the right questions rather than thinking that you've got to pull the lever from the top. That's mm. not that's not always the best way to sort of conduct ministerial activity. Sometimes it's just about asking the right questions and prompting that response. And I, I've got to say this again, because the Home Office, the security services, police force... They come in for such a hard time and rightly in some cases you you have to have such sort of, you know, impeccable scores really in order to, to do this job. But they do an incredible job under very straightened circumstances. So however many times things go wrong, you know, people don't necessarily, you know, appreciate how much they do to get it right and believe me you know as any spad in the home office will know everybody knows how hard people come down on you when things go wrong and you take it but there's a lot that they do that's that's actually really good i just end by saying reflecting what sir frank soskis who was the home secretary under harold wilson said which was poor old home office we don't always make a mistake but we always get the blame that's a good note to end on james and salma thank you very much and thank you very much for listening at home if you enjoyed this podcast do give us a rating and review and why not tell a friend about it